So when we're talking about trees and roots, those roots grew in a soil. And our job, I see as as a functional nutrition and lifestyle practitioner, is to address the soil. How do I make this soil the soil in which those dysfunctional roots cannot grow? And that's how we change a person's outcome. So it's less looking at, oh, let me cut this branch off of the tree. It's looking at, wait a minute, how do I get to the source code in which this all exists? Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Today, I am bringing on a very special guest and a dear friend, Andrea Nakayama, And we are going to be talking about why functional medicine and functional nutrition matter to you. Now, this is going to be a deep topic into the realm of a new frontier in medicine, and we like to call it functional medicine. I consider myself a functional practitioner, and I believe that we need to take an integrative approach to healing the body. And I am so grateful to see that there are more and more doctors and coaches exploring this direction in medicine. It's how we truly heal ourselves. But before we jump into this epic and real talk conversation about functional medicine with Andrea and all things wellness today, I want to take a moment and shout you out. That's right. I want to celebrate your wins and defining healing moments. If you've been listening to the last couple of months of the Essentially You podcast, you would know that we are creating some incredible momentum, not only with my new book, The Essential Oils Hormone Solution, but also with two episodes that I am bringing you each and every week. And with the addition of these two episodes since the beginning of 2019, we are bringing on more incredible wellness warriors to listen in every single week. And we are about to hit a mega milestone. We are about to hit a quarter million downloads in the next week or so. So thank you so much. Now I want to shout out a particular listener and her name is Laura. Now, Laura, I want to shout you out because you had reached out to me on Instagram a couple days ago and you had shared such a powerful testimonial with me. Here it is. So Laura said, I am a registered nurse and the last couple of years have felt like a blur. I wasn't really listening to my body and I couldn't honestly tell you what was going on with me. Luckily, I discovered you and your podcast because a friend told me about one of your episodes. I guess she thought that the episode would shed some light on my chronic fatigue earlier in this year. I can't tell you how much these episodes have changed my life. I feel like I'm getting my body back. Thank you so much, Lauren, for sharing your win, girl. I am so happy to be able to take a moment and shout you out today. Now, if you are listening to this podcast and you have had an amazing healing win, potentially from some of the episodes or some of the amazing experts I've had on here, I would love to hear from you. I would love to shout you out as well. So you can reach out to me via Instagram or Facebook or simply review this podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you love to plug into. That way I can continue to support more women who are ready to become the CEO of their health and also continue to spread the word about this incredible revolution that we are creating around women's health. So that's what I wanted to focus on today was a little shout out and a little win because I feel like these little wins, they add up over time to create really incredible sustainable changes. And that is what I am looking for for you on this podcast. So let's dive on into this incredible conversation with Andrea Nakayama. But first, as you know, I want to sing her praises. I'd like to introduce you to Andrea Nakayama. Andrea has become a big deal in the world of functional medicine as a nutritionist who can help chronically ill people get better when no one else can. Her clinical skills have won her the attention of many world-renowned doctors who consult with her on their most difficult cases. More than that, Andrea trains thousands of practitioners every year on how to have a clinical success that she has had. The CEO and the founder of Functional Nutrition Alliance and the Functional Nutrition Lab, she has trained an army of changemakers in the field of healthcare. Well, let's get started with this incredible conversation. 
welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Andrea. I am so excited to have you on here today. Marisa, I'm just so loving spending time with you. It's a pleasure to be here with you in your community. Oh, thank you. And same as well. I know, and we'll get to actually give each other hugs and connect like a little one-to-one level in literally just about a month from now. I know it's so soon. I'll be there in your neck of the woods. Yes, you will. You will. You'll be right in my backyard. So excited for that. And I know I've just told everyone about how big of a player you are in the functional space, but I specifically would love to hear a little bit about what brought you into functional medicine and kind of that, that story, because your story is, it don't, not only touches my heart, but really it, it's the reason why you've been able to change tens of thousands of people's lives. Mm, Thank you for asking that. And yeah, story is such a huge part of who we are and what we do. And mine was, of course, really impactful. So I know many of us who are in the healing space, so to speak, came here because of a personal health crisis or a family health crisis. And for me, that was when my husband was diagnosed with a very grave brain tumor back in April of 2000. And at the time I was seven weeks pregnant and we were telling people that we had a brain tumor before we were even revealing the fact that we were pregnant. Because of course, these days, or I should say those days now, we waited till we had gotten through about 12 weeks. So we were telling people, oh my gosh, Isamu's been diagnosed with a brain tumor before we were saying, and by the way, hey, we, we have a baby on the way. So it was a very intense time, as you can imagine. He was given about six months to live. They didn't think he would live to see our son born. We kicked into high gear. And during that time when we were doing everything and anything, so every medical treatment we could research and embrace, but every alternative and integrative treatment as well, including diet and huge huge lifestyle modification. I was also witnessing how he was treated like his diagnosis. So he would walk into medical offices and be treated like a dead man. And of course, this was my very stoic, very upstanding, very intelligent soulmate. So I was shocked by the way he was being treated. And that entire experience woke me up to where we need to go in medicine and what was missing in medicine. And that was sort of the roots of everything that changed for me. He did outlive his prognosis, just to finish that end of the story. He lived two and a half years. He did have about 19 months with our son to do some good imprinting. That was way back in 2002, July of 2002, that he passed away. But it was a transformative time. I think of it as my boot camp, and things progressed from there in terms of my career change and development. And thank you so much for sharing that story. You know, when you had that kind of moment when you were seeing your husband or your partner treated like he was kind of a dead man walking, what was your feeling around the medical community around that? How did you feel it should have been differently? For me, I'm a yes and person. So I tend not to just look at everything as all bad or all good. I'm a probably eternal and hopeless optimist. Which is why I love you, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. I approach life with joy and, and hope. It's just kind of inbred in me. So there was so much that we could do with what was being offered to us. And we didn't let that direct our course. We were doing everything at home and that we could think of in addition to what was being offered to us. But seeing somebody you love suffer, first of all, is is maybe more painful than actually losing them. Like the suffering is just horrible. And I can relate to this as a parent, you know, and as working with thousands of clients now and in them watching their partners or children or parents suffer. But seeing somebody mistreated really triggers that desire for justice. And that for me was a big uh uh-uh 
that happened. No more. This isn't okay. And part of what was at the core of that mistreatment was not seeing somebody through a functional lens. And that functional lens means that we see them as a whole. We understand what is going on with their history and what's going on with them culturally and everything about the person that led them to that point of needing care. And it's taken me years to unpack that and teach it to other practitioners, but it was the functional lens of seeing the whole that was really missing and was an injustice, in my opinion, at that point that I couldn't yet identify or work with. And let me just say, Marisa, I wasn't a clinician then. I had a completely different career. It wasn't until after Isamu died, several years after, that I went through a huge career change. So I had a very successful other career before making this change in my life. I had two. Thanks for sharing that too. I had two specific questions. You know, Isamo, he clearly lasted much longer than they anticipated. What were some of the things that you feel contributed to that? Was it the birth of your, your son? Was it some of the functional type of, of practices you were using? It's an interesting question, and I have a smile on my face, which I know the listeners can't see. But, you know, I think it was love is number one. So love and hope, probably, as you said, the birth of our son, Isamu was very intent and excited to be a dad. And so he was looking forward to that opportunity and really intended to be here. So he was going for the long term. He too was an optimist. I think we were almost like dopey to the fact that this could actually turn out the way it did. We were fighting in a way that we were putting everything and everything into it, but without aggression or aggravation, but with commitment and passion. We wanted to have this full life together that we had been planning on. And so the love that we had, the time we took, and that included all the things we did. So I think when we approach a situation and we approach hardship with love, we have the resources and the resilience to encompass and entertain all the opportunities to do extra things. And we did it together. I call it our brain tumor. You probably heard me say that earlier. We were telling people we had a brain tumor before we told them we were pregnant. Now, I could say he had a brain tumor and I was pregnant, but we were in that together. We were shrouded in this love and this way that we were approaching everything. We went to yoga together. He was doing herbs and we changed our diet significantly. We were walking and meditating and he was, it, it was like his whole life changed. He became like a Buddha. His He carried around the Bhagavad Gita and when he was in waiting rooms, he was reading and it just became a different way of life. And it was, it was very rich. It was probably why I am able to do the work I do now in working with people who are chronically ill, because I'm not scared to go to the tenuous, unsure place. We lived there and we lived there in a rich and beautiful way. It was the first word that actually came into my mind and I don't know why I had used it was love. But I was, you know, I was, yeah. search, I was like, that one popped up. And then I was like, oh, but let me just search for a couple other words. And you know, love is so powerful. Love and hope. So powerful. And in the fact that you guys were able to transcend so much of that with, with love and grace and hope. And really, I mean, clearly several years later, it, it inspired you. My gut tells me it inspired you to want to go out and serve more people. And what did that decision look like? Because you said you did stay within your career for, for a little while longer. Yeah, it was an interesting course of action. So I 
I stayed committed to the diet that we had integrated. And that diet was specifically for somebody with cancer and somebody with brain cancer. So it evolved over the years, especially as my son grew and I developed Hashimoto's, like there were changes to the diet over time. But I had really worked during the time that Isamu was alive to make sure that the food we ate was as yummy as possible. He was a very sensual person. He could get lost in a meal. And I was already a real foodie. We lived in the Bay Area. We shopped at all the, you know, best markets and farmers markets, ate organic. Like we already were in this very foodie related world. So I kept that alive even while we changed our diet. So it didn't feel like anything was missing from our diet. And that carried on after he died so that I was the person who who ate, made the really yummy, healthy food. And that's how I showed up in our communities at potlucks and at, at you know preschool and kindergarten functions. And at some point along the way, I had a friend who was diagnosed with colon cancer. Now, I live in Portland, Oregon now. There are a lot of naturopathic physicians here, and a lot of people in my community were doctors, were naturopathic doctors. So this friend who was diagnosed was one of those doctors. She's very well known in the midwifery community. She's a naturopathic midwife, teaches at the college here. And I went into my drive of research, like, okay, here's goes. I need to start helping her. And then I thought, oh, she doesn't need me to help her. There's all these doctors in this community. What do they need me for? And so I kept going back and forth with this research. I want to help. And they don't really need me to help. And at a certain point, she came to me and said, would you be willing to take on the responsibility for helping me prepare for surgery with my food and my diet and recover from surgery? And I was smitten. I was like, sure, I'll help with that. And I started to research and I came upon the website of a nutritionist and it was like light came from the sky. It was like, what am I doing? I This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Why am I in this career? Again, very established career. I worked from home for a company in New York in a job that most people would covet and think I was crazy to leave. <laughs> and I left and I put myself back through school, many, many, many years of school to pursue my passion. And here I am today, very fortunate to be living and practicing the work that I love so much and teaching so many others to do it as well. Well, and that's what I'm so excited to connect and share about is that you not only you know, we're are serving just in general people with chronic conditions, but you're also training a lot of these practitioners. Now, one of the things that popped up just now, and I do, I do want to start asking more questions about functional medicine, but I'm so intrigued. You know, when you decided to make that switch on over into, you know, functional nutrition, how was it being a single mom in that process? It's funny because I don't know any different, really. So Gilbert was my son. Gilbert, who's now 17, was born in a situation where I had a husband who was going through treatment and you know he was present as a parent and loving as a parent, but there was a lot for us to do to take care of him, to make sure that the food was right and the medication was happening and all the supplements and all the appointments. And so by the time I did actually become a single parent, in some ways it was ease, as much as I hate to say that, as compared to the life we were living through the prior 19 months. So I think it's very different when we don't know any different. I would look at women walking with their stroller and their you know, bag of groceries kind of rolling their eyes at their husband who wasn't doing enough or their partner who wasn't doing enough. And I would just think that's not my orientation. I never had that privilege. And so I've just been able to do it and make it happen. And again, I think it's like when you don't have the limb, you don't miss having the limb. You learn to use the other hand. That's a good way to put it. Well, I just want to just take a moment and just honor the fact that you know, that you have been able to do so much of this with ease and grace all these years. 
So you decided to jump in to functional nutrition. And we know, you know, I've had other amazing functional practitioners on this podcast. It's such a blessing to get to hear everyone's perspective. And I know that there's still a lot of us out there who are not very clear on even what functional medicine is or the differentiation between, you know, functional medicine relative to functional nutrition. Would you speak a little bit on that? Because this is, this is your life's work based on, you know, really this journey and, you know, what kind of the face of where we see medicine heading. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I should say when I started doing this work, it wasn't called (laughs) functional nutrition. So like there, there wasn't really any way the seed was there and my seed certainly with what I was talking about with not seeing the person as a whole. But when it comes to functional medicine, the things that we want to think about as the primary tenets that we see the Institute of Functional Medicine really speaking into, and these are vast, but the way we break them down is thinking into the fact that the patient and the practitioner are in a therapeutic relationship. So that's key key point number one is that there's that therapeutic relationship that's happening. And I I think what often happens is we celebrate the doctor in that situation. And my goal, and I'll talk about this a little bit in, in a moment when I talk more about functional nutrition versus functional medicine, is that we also need to celebrate and elevate the role of the patient. So there's that therapeutic partnership working together. It's not a God-like relationship, but instead a guide, right? We're shifting that. Number two, key tenant number two in functional medicine is that we're looking for the roots as opposed to addressing just the signs, the symptoms, or the diagnosis. I think this gets lost a lot still. I think even in functional medicine, there tends to be a diagnostic, what I call a tier three approach, and maybe we'll get into that later. But we are looking for the roots, which means we're asking why, not what. So why is this happening? Not what is it? What do I label it? And how do I address that? So that's number two. And key number three is that we're working in systems. And that means a few things from my perspective. One is that there's an interconnection between the biological systems, meaning, you know, how is the gastrointestinal function connected to detoxification or the immune or the hormones? We see it all as interconnected. How is my story a piece of my Hashimoto's, right? How do we see it all together? But also that we can take a systems approach in terms of how we work. How do we actually see the complexity of the whole human in a systematic way so we know where to go and when? Because when it comes to working functionally, sometimes we have to move out of protocol. It's not this one diet. It's not this one way. It's not this infection protocol. We have to see who is the human here and where does that guide me. So that takes systems. Otherwise, every case is a brand new arena and we're going to get lost in the every single little detail. So Those are the three tenants. Again, therapeutic partnership. Partnership is key. Looking for the roots, asking why, not what, and being able to think in systems of interconnectedness, but also in terms of how we work. So now when we think about functional nutrition versus functional medicine, we're still looking to our medical doctors to be doctors. We need them to work within their scope of practice. In my opinion, and in what I see, there's a gap in functional medicine, which is a gap that exists between the doctor who can see possibly the whole and the patient who is stuck in the weeds trying to figure out what to do. And that gap needs to be filled by what I call an allied functional medicine practitioner, somebody who can get into the weeds, but with a clinical eye. It's different than a coach 
who's going to tell you to do what the doctor said. It's somebody who can break it apart. Why is that happening when this person takes that methylated folate that they're dizzy? What could be happening? How do I break that down? How do I look at what's happening in their liver? We do need a clinical perspective, but from a closer in lens to what's being executed each and every day. And that's to me where the functional nutrition and lifestyle practitioner exists, being able to kind of micro track and assess. So I always like to say we assess, we don't diagnose, we recommend, we don't prescribe. And overall, we track and sometimes we have to micro track, which is those are all things that are out of the scope of the doctor who can't spend time at that level of detail in what the patient needs to do each and every day to get better. That completely makes sense. And I can imagine this gap is, is a pretty big discrepancy right now, you know, in, with the everyday patient just kind of following the recommendations. You know, I have a, a good friend of mine, one of my best friends, and she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer a couple, about a month and a half ago. And she went in and I was coaching her before and I'm continuing to connect with her. But she did ask her doctor, what kind of food should she be mindful of? And he was just like, oh, you can eat anything and everything at this point. And there was a mass and I had just been, you know, she'd heard something very different from me. And she's like, I just want you to know that that's what he said. In a lot of ways, I think she was kind of testing me to see if like, was that permission? You know, I but I knew she knew in her heart, her hearts, and her gut that that wasn't sound advice. But that is what the doctor said to her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it really comes down to knowing what kind of doctor we're working with and understanding how we become as patients, because we're all patients. So when I say we, I mean, we as patients have to take more ownership. So the information, the studies, the, the research that diet and lifestyle modification matter is undeniable. It's, there's no lack of information out there that diet and lifestyle modification make a difference. For cancer, particularly, we can look at sugar and blood sugar levels and stress and the implication that those factors physiologically have on the growth of the cancer cells. Undeniable. So how do we then know like, okay, that doctor is speaking within his scope. He wasn't taught diet and lifestyle modification. Maybe he got a half hour of nutrition in medical school. Great. I'm going to go to him or her for her scope of practice. But wait a second. I know I can likely be doing more in between my visits to help myself. And sure, if we're just looking to get on the healthy train, if we're already healthy, if we don't have a diagnosis, if we are getting better, we can go to the books, to the web, do our own research. But when it's complicated and when you're not getting better or when it's grave, you have a diagnosis that you really want to encounter, it does take another kind of clinician who can get in there and look at the labs and even from your regular old serum labs, like, okay, we need to work with your blood sugar. We need to get your sodium potassium dialed in. Your liver enzymes are too high. What do we do to get your body, again, functional because when the full body systems are functional, there is less room for disease. So when we're talking about trees and roots, those roots grew in a soil. And our job, I see as, as a functional nutrition and lifestyle practitioner, is to address the soil. How do I make this soil the soil in which those dysfunctional roots cannot grow? And that's how we change a person's outcome. So it's less looking at, oh, let me cut this branch off of the tree. It's looking at, wait a minute, how do I get to the source code in which this all exists? And there's so much work to do there. And it's often work that's beyond what we as individuals can figure out. We do need another clinical perspective to help us do that in particular situations. I 100% agree. And really quickly, because I know a lot of women listening to this are still really trying to navigate, they're trying to find the right practitioners. You know, there aren't a lot of functional 
nutritionists and practitioners out there yet. And, you know, I, they, I know they're working, some women are working with coaches, some women are working with doctors, but I think some people still are not 100% sure that diet and lifestyle modification plays a massive role in their health and well-being. Could you just shed some light on that? I know this is a very big topic, yeah, a general yeah. question, but I think I just would love a little, a little validity in what I'm saying all the time, you know, just from some, because <laughs> I it was at that moment where my my best friend just kind of was like, "Well, you know, it's what he said," and I was like, "Are you are you really?" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it's really it's hard, and I think we we are still a culture that a wants the quick fix, and diet and lifestyle change is not a quick fix. So I, I get it. It's it's a hard pill to swallow because it means we have to change what is and our amygdala screams in our brain and says, no, it's part of our brain that says like, I do not want change. I've already got too much going on. But at the core of it, we are feeding our bodies, our cells in our bodies in myriad ways. And, and we can talk more about this with my three tiers approach, but our whole environment, who we spend time with, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the sheets we sleep on, all of it informs our cells. But the biggest thing we do day in and day out to inform our cellular expression is eat. And when I say our cellular expression, I mean how those cells are behaving. So whether they're inflamed, whether they have extra stress and can deal with that stress, how we're looking at our genetics, which is such a big subject right these days, all of that is informed by what coats everything. And that is what we put in our bodies. So I always like to say that digestion is the biggest stress our body goes through each and every day. It's a pretty hardcore system that has to work really hard, but we're putting things into it all the time that inform how our body functions each and every day, each and every moment, the time in between, what it is we put in there, the combination of it, how it interacts with our bodies, all of it matters. I think of this as symbiosis. Where does your food meet your physiology? Meaning what's different for you than anybody else? So I think at its core, if we just think about the fact that we're dumping something into the system it's pretty obvious that it has an impact. And then we can look at specifics of like, why would it have an impact? Why does, let's say, protein matter for brain health or low glycemic matter for cancer prevention? There's specifics in there, but I don't know if that answers your question. It is so complicated, but it's so, I live in a bubble. Maybe it's so obvious. No, and I think one of the couple of things that you had said, and I, I think we're beginning to realize is that you're right, the digestive system, working out what you have eaten, it requires so much energy and that everything that we eat is information for the body. And I think people are really beginning to see that that's true. I feel like the more and more we can say it, what we're putting in our body is literally dictating the way that our cells are functioning. You know, people begin to have this aha moment. So I, that was what I was looking for, girl. It's, as you said, information for our cells and our cells are how we feel at the core. So I know it's, it's disconnected because we're not often walking around thinking about ourselves. Right. Those trillion little guys just making it work. It won't realize that every little cell is just trying to survive in its own way. No one thinks of it that way. Like how miraculous it is that this little cell is just trying to make it work, trying to keep the, the house clean inside and you know, make sure it's got enough energy to function and that it's, that it's properly replicating. I mean, there's just, oh my gosh, I remember I had a biology teacher and the miraculousness of the cells, it was just always so fun to learn from her because it just, it did, it totally blew your mind when you looked at it in that way. Well, I remember I had a cousin who, a second cousin who was studying to be a nurse practitioner. And she came to me and said, my dad was telling me about what you do. And it's really interesting. He said, you look at nutrition, like through the lens of chemistry. And I 
stood there and I was like, what do you think is happening in there? It's, it's all chemistry. You're like, uh. the, the, That's what it is. So the process that we go through to put food in our mouth, to digest it, which is really means breaking it down and absorbing it into our system so that it can feed ourselves. Ultimately, we are eating to provide food for ourselves. And when we think about it through that lens, it may shift what we put in our mouth. Ultimately though, Marisa, I think the thing that matters is when we make the connection between how we feel and what we're doing. And, and you and I can talk scientifically and hypothetically, but for each of us as patients, it really comes down to what do I want? What are my goals? What is not having those goals keeping me from? in my life? And what am I willing to do to obtain those goals? And that's where we start to make the connections between what we're doing that allows for that ownership. Because somebody telling you to do it, especially if you have a little bit of a rebel in you like I do, that's not going to work. Oh, I hear that. Me too. So now that we've got a good sense of understanding the importance that lifestyle and diet play here, and this is something that you and I both already really know well, you know, what are some of the tools and systems that a person, that a patient like yourself and I can find to really figure out what's going on with their bodies? You know, so often we don't know what's happening. Exactly, exactly. And this is where I think we need to slow it down. Again, we live in a quick fix culture. And sometimes that quick fix means we go for the pill. I have this pain. I have this diagnosis. Give me the pill for it. And then we find that doesn't work. But the other side of that, and we see a lot of this in our community, is people also go for the diet that, you know, whether it's, uh, am I doing a Whole30 or a ketogenic, we think like, oh, that's the answer. But when we're thinking functionally, we can't think in protocol. We actually have to understand what works for me and what doesn't work for me. So I truly believe that the tool we need, the biggest tool we need to understand ourselves, which is where that empowerment comes from, are trackers and understanding what we're tracking and why. I like to think of the functional nutrition practice as an art, and that art stands for assess, recommend, and track. So as a clinician, I can assess and recommend, but the tracking is something that the patient needs to do. And sometimes that tracking has to get down into what I call micro tracking. What can I eat and not feel that symptom? What happens if I try these three different breakfasts? How does that carry me to lunch? How did I sleep last night when I went to bed at 9.30 versus 10.30? We start to really look at our patterns, our behaviors, and track the distinctions. That's where we start to shed some light. So I think the best tool, if we're working individually, is to track and see what's happening with ourselves. And when you mean by track, is that keeping a journal? It is keeping a journal. I have a food mood poop journal with mood being in quotations. It's really any sign or symptom, but really just writing everything down, not worrying about being analytical about it in the beginning, just taking a look at what do I eat? How do I feel? What symptoms came up? What and when and where did I poop? How did that feel? And keeping some baseline information so we can then go back and start to make some correlations. Well, I had a headache that morning after I ate or when I waited too long to eat lunch, then you course correct. So you don't be too analytical or too obsessive in the process. And of course, I just want to say again, Marisa, this is for the person who's sick and not getting better. If you feel good and you just want to feel a little better, then a lot of the stuff that's out there and available to you likely works. It helps. See how you feel on the whole 30 versus not the whole 30. See how you feel on a night when you drink versus a night when you don't drink. That's easier in that realm to find your footing. It's when 
we're in that stuck place and all the things feel like they're not working, that we have to slow down the process. There likely isn't a quick fix. And, you know, my mission and passion is working with the people in that arena who are sick and not getting better because it takes a different level of awareness and care. And it's a growing population, unfortunately. It is a growing population. You're absolutely right. And I do agree with you. And I'm so excited that this is the the wonderful offering that you're giving us is the food, mood, and poop challenge. Yes. But I think it is so important to think about just how we feel after we eat something, after we stay out too late, after there's so many things that we can kind of look at just to kind of get a sense of, you know, how we can course correct, you know, in a lot of simple ways to getting our body in that optimal way of feeling. What constantly surprises me is that we're willing to bring a certain level of slowness and breath and awareness to our yoga practices or to our enlightenment or to the work that we do around our spiritual development. And of course, I'm talking about a subset of the population. I think we need to bring that same care and attention to our diet and lifestyle. I think we need to be slow, sometimes methodical, not to bore ourselves in it. That would bore me too, but to be aware. It's an awareness. It's a body awareness. Most of us don't know where our stomach is to our small intestine or where our liver lives. And I'm really about bringing people back into their body so they can talk about it with intelligence, so they can be in a relationship that I I like to think about in terms of the realm of nonviolent communication with self. So we know in relationship that when we're practicing nonviolent communication with our partners, that we listen. Instead of talking over them, we allow them to say what they have to say. And then we say something like, I hear that you're saying, and we repeat it back to them. I like to teach people to do that with their bodies. So my body is telling me I have a symptom. I have a stomach ache when I do this. I have a headache when I eat that. When I drink the next day, I feel like I eat more sugar. Whatever it is, we start to listen and then respond as opposed to ignoring and essentially talking over it because we want to do the bad behavior or the bad for us behavior, I shouldn't label it, but it might be something that's not serving you. And the more we listen in, the more we can course correct and say like, okay, that's not working for me anymore. I hear that. And it's so important that self-awareness and to not, and to not, you you said, put labels on it, but just recognizing kind of what is serving and what is not. And I feel that the more and more we kind of listen to our bodies, even if we don't know exactly where the liver is, that we can make some good judgments in terms of what's really going to serve us in the long run. Exactly. And then, you know, for the person who is in pain and suffering and that like is coming in our clinic or working with one of our online programs, I do like to teach that in a way that's fun and applicable so that we can all bring attention to back to our bodies and and really have a fun experience with it as well. I love that. I love that approach. Now, I know before we get going, I did want you to connect and I know it's not a quick way to connect into it, but I wanted you to, to talk a little bit about the system that you use that you mentioned a moment ago in the beginning, which was on the three tiers to genetic mastery. Can you tell us a little bit about that, a little bit more detail? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's an approach that I developed probably in response to everything we see out there that's like seven steps to and 10 tips to, right? Because we are unique. So if we are unique and if we are going to work in a system to help ourselves get better, how do we still have a systemized approach so that we're not all over the place chasing every little last thing? So the three tiers to genetic mastery, first of all, let's just call it the three tiers to health mastery. Because if we're thinking about genetics and that's not your thing, you may tune out. But this approach is something you want to tune into. So the three tiers, tier number one is what I call the non-negotiables. Tier number two is deficiency to sufficiency. And tier number three is dismantling the dysfunction. So if we're working with a functional medicine doctor, they're still likely working at tier three. 
dismantling the dysfunction. And the reason we see so many people in our clinic who are working with functional medicine practitioners is because of that gap. The person might not be able to handle dismantling the dysfunction if the other pieces aren't in place. We can say the roots or the tree branches are dysfunctional, but what is the terrain in which those roots or that branch existed? So this is where we go back to those first two tiers. So I'm just going to talk into those a little bit. Tier number one, again, I said are the non-negotiables. This is what we need to figure out for ourselves. So for me, I have Hashimoto's. I know that there's specific non-negotiables that have been proven out there, like eating gluten isn't supportive for thyroid health, especially autoimmune thyroid health, any autoimmune health, period. But then I have to figure out for myself, what are my non-negotiables? My non-negotiables are going to bed by a certain point because I want to live my best life and stay in that optimistic, hopeful, joyful place in my life. So it's not worth it to me to stay up too late. So a non-negotiable is adhering to my bedtime as much as I possibly can. Of course, there's going to be opportunities where I decide to you know, go off course. But bedtime becomes a non-negotiable. What are the other things that are non-negotiables to me? They become diet and lifestyle, but they also become who's in my life. What practices do I engage in? Do I want to get out in the woods every weekend? What are my non-negotiables? And it's a really good one for everybody listening to just double click on and jot a few things down. What's a non-negotiable for you? And a non-negotiable may be, I want to go out with my friends every Saturday night and have a couple glasses of wine. If that's a non-negotiable for you, no matter what's going on in your life, what else do you need to do or put into practice to enable that to happen without compromising your health? So non-negotiables are yours as an individual, as a patient, and they are the things that most support you. Tier number two is deficiency to sufficiency. Now, some deficiencies you may need a clinician to help you identify them. A vitamin D deficiency, a hormone deficiency, whether it be cortisol or thyroid, you may need a clinician. But what other deficiencies exist and how can you support yourself? You can have a deficiency in love or friendship or connection. You can have deficiencies in stomach acid that cause you pain when you eat a certain thing and you know you need enzymes. Deficiencies can be all sorts of things. And when we look through a full diet and lifestyle and life arena, we start to be able to say, where do I have deficiencies in my life and what can I do about it? Does that make sense, Marisa, looking at the non-negotiables and the deficiencies and what can we take care of on our own and where might we need a clinician to help us identify some further ones? That absolutely makes sense to me. And I love how it's broken up in those three tiers. Yeah, it's really helpful to think. And even when I'm training clinicians, I'm often having to say, back it up. Have you dealt with all the non-negotiables? Until we deal with the non-negotiables, we can't just skip right to the diagnosis. If somebody has small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and they haven't done the work to be able to handle the treatment, they may get worse from the treatment, even though the treatment is the right treatment. If that pre-work hasn't been done, it's setting the foundation for us to be able to target the dysfunction, but we need to do that work. And a lot of that we can do on our own as patients, just reflecting and saying, what are my non-negotiables? What are the things that I need to feel my best? And that's where some tracking or some slowing down or some awareness may come into play. Well, and that's why I love this offering that you have where we really get to look at the food, mood, and poop and really just just be self-aware of what's happening with our bodies, recognizing there's a lot of people who are breaking their non-negotiables right now because they're not put into that category of this is a non-negotiable. 
you know, one of the things I love about the Food Mood Poop Challenge, and, you know, I do it a couple times a year publicly, where I'll share my Food Mood Poop journal as I'm doing it, is that when we do it, it also helps us to up our game and see how we feel. So because we're documenting, we may look at a few different things like, wait a minute, I skipped lunch or, whoa, I just ate something. And even though I don't eat quote unquote white foods, everything I ate was sort of colorless. So one of the things that I do in that ebook is really even bring our awareness to taking out our colored pencils and seeing what colors did we eat. It's funny, I just uh, recently, as you know, Marisa went on a big backpacking trip. And when we came out, out of the woods, we were in a small town and there wasn't, there weren't really that many places to eat. So we ended up like eating at Whole Foods every meal from our hotel. But I had this little challenge going on for myself about color. How do I make sure I eat every color all day long. So every time I go and make choices at the food bar at Whole Foods, I'm making sure that I've gotten every color today. I've got green, I've got purple, I've got red, I've got yellow, I've got orange. And that helped direct every choice I make. And it becomes a fun little game, even when you're on the road. I agree. I do that. And also anytime we go grocery shopping, it's the same thing. I'm always making sure that we have all the colors. Because mostly what we buy when we go to the grocery store is plants. And I love as many colors of plants as possible, especially green, lots of different greens. Well, my dear, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on quickly before we go. One, we've got the wonderful offer, the ebook that you're giving, and I will have that in the show notes. But where else can we find you? Where can we get more of you? Thank you for asking. There's a lot going on in our world and you can learn about it at fxnutrition.com. So that's for functional, fxnutrition.com. And depending on what interests you, there's lots there. If you're a patient, if you're a practitioner who wants to learn more about functional nutrition, if you're a doctor listening and you want somebody doing functional nutrition on your team, there's lots of opportunities and offers for you over there to see what we're up to and what we've got going on. Well, thank you so much, Hen, and for sharing your story, your wisdom, and some really big, I feel very applicable and applicable takeaways that we can do. Thank you. I know it's a paradigm shift at times to slow down and, you know, get out of our quick fix mode. But I really do believe that the long term work is what leads to the sustainable results and bringing us where we want to be in the world. I agree. All right, honey. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. As you can tell from our conversation, Andrea is the real deal. And I hope that our conversation sheds some light on functional medicine and how it can begin to serve you as well. Now, if you're interested in learning more, I want you to check out my podcast, episode number 32 with Dr. Will Cole. Now, Dr. Will Cole is also another dear friend and practices functional medicine every day and is a leading voice in this new frontier. He also has an incredible book that I am loving. So you're definitely gonna wanna go and check out episode 33 from the summer and listen a little bit more about how he's bringing functional medicine to the forefront. Now, if you're ready to take a deep dive with Andrea, which I highly recommend, I want you to check out her Functional Nutrition Lab Food Mood Poop Challenge. Now, this is really important because we get to see, well, what is going on in the body? And these are three very big indicators. Now, if you wanna grab this beautiful freebie, which she has created especially for you. All you gotta go is to my show notes or to the website at drmarisa.com podcast or drmarisa.com slash episode 71. So either way you can get to it, you will find this episode and you will find this wonderful offer that Andrea is offering for us. Lastly, I wanna say thank you so much for stopping by and listening into the Essentially You podcast. On the next episode, I am coming back. That's right. And I am tackling a topic that I get asked about practically every single day. You know, I love to give you what you want. So I'm gonna be covering how to overcome brain fog instantly, not only with essential oils, but with some other incredible tools as well. I will get your brain back on the fast track to function and alertness in no time flat with these incredible solutions. So I can't wait for you to check out that new episode coming up. 
And if you have a moment, definitely continue to shout out your wins, share those victories. And you can do that by reaching out to me via social or going to the Essentially You podcast on iTunes. Again, through word of mouth is how we create this revolution. And I know that you and I are doing it every day. We just have got to get the word out to other people who are ready to take charge and take ownership of their health. Well, until then, have an amazing day. And I can't wait to see you on the next episode. 